My name is Dr. Joanna Pagonis, and welcome to Tackle Tuesday. Tackle Tuesday is a podcast series that tackles different issues in the workplace. We explore topics such as leading with emotion, diversity and inclusion, and how to create resilient and agile work cultures. Today's episode is sponsored by Synogap Solutions. We work closely with emerging leaders to help you develop a clear vision of your authentic self and to discover your passion and how it aligns with your purpose. Once you have a clear understanding of your purpose and vision for your future, you'll be able to discover your path for continuous growth along with the energy and enthusiasm necessary to sustain you during the most challenging moments in your life. We encourage you to visit our website at SinogapSolutions.com and explore the courses we offer that will help you develop the mindset and capabilities to be an inspirational leader. For this week's Tackle Tuesday, I had the absolute pleasure of chatting with Dan Eds, who is the CEO of Praxis Solutions, a management consulting firm. Dan is the author of the book, Leveraging the Genetics of Leadership, Cracking the Code of Sustainable Team Performance. And his book really focuses on and reveals a new approach to leadership development, which some have actually called revolutionary. But this approach actually results in organizations that deliver unparalleled customer value, daily innovation, and unmatched, unmatched levels of employee engagement. I highly recommend buying his book. Now, during our conversation, we explore the main concepts and approaches in his book, and we tackle how important love is. And that's right. You heard me right. I said, love is in the workplace and the important role it plays in creating cohesive teams. And additionally, we do talk about what Dan means in regards to a revolutionary approach to leadership development in the workplace. So I have no doubt that during this episode, uh, you will be inspired to think about or maybe even redefine what leadership really is and really explore and examine and think about a new way to approach leadership development in your organizations. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Dan. Thank you. I just want to thank Dan Eds for being on Tackle Tuesday today. I'm really excited to have you on the show. I should ever let everybody know that before I hit record, we always have like a 30-minute uh, little chat to just kind of figure out what we're going to talk about. And we actually, I mean, I wish I had hit record 30 minutes ago because we had such a great conversation. And unfortunately, you missed part of it, but we will recreate it now and we will repeat some of it and go into a lot of those concepts. But I'm really excited to have you on the show, Dan. So welcome to Tackle Tuesday. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Oh, thank you. Uh, when I was reviewing the questions that I was going to ask you today, I was I got really excited and and I just felt like we're soulmates. And I don't know where you've been my whole life, Dan. <laughs> we're finally connected. <laughs> oh, I'm like it's just it's wonderful because I'm reading your th- your stuff and I'm just like, oh, I feel like we are so aligned and mm-hmm. and you 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 get it and I get what you're saying and mm-hmm. we're going to get into it because one mm-hmm. of the challenges I. I struggle with, especially as a consultant, mm-hmm. is how do I tic- articulate yeah. the, what what we know is true, what we know works. I have a hard time articulating it in a way that yep. people understand, yep. and not only that they understand, that they see a value in mm-hmm. investing in, yeah. right? Yeah. And th- that's what I hope we can get out of our conversation today. And you can provide some of that, some of that wisdom. So Dan, I'd like to start off first by breaking the ice like I do with all my guests. Can you, and so my, I get to know you a bit more and my guests who are, list, my listeners can get to know you a bit more. So tell us a little bit about your career journey and what led you to devoting your life to helping and supporting organizations become great. Yeah. Well, I'll spare you the, the, the really long story, which is, um, you know, I was in a dead-end dead end job uh, going nowhere, and uh, I thought, I've got to jumpstart this thing somehow. So I went back to school, got an MBA in uh, international business, and then I couldn't buy a job. Um, you know, I, I, I have these interviews, and people would say, you know, you're a round peg, I have a square hole. And, you know, I didn't fit. And so... Uh, 
actually a friend of mine from a local school district called me up and said, uh, Dan, I have this, I was, I had been in the printing business, graphic arts. And he said, I have this, this implant graphic arts uh, print shop and I don't know what to do with it. Can you come up and tell me? And I didn't know if I was going up for a job interview or what. And about halfway through, I realized he wanted a consultant to come in and tell him what to do. And, and so um, I, I quoted him a price that was literally twice what I thought he would pay, and he paid it. <laughs> I'm going to use that sales technique. <laughs> so that project led to another one, which led to another one, which led to another one. And then pretty soon I'm an independent consultant. And then pretty soon, well, let's join forces. And I'm working for a large, uh, very large uh, national consulting firm. And, and you know, so it goes on from there. Okay. Um so really, we're here to focus on your book, um, Leveraging the Genetics of Leadership, Cracking the Code of Sustainable Team Performance. Yeah. Share a little bit about the premise of the book. I'll be sure to share in the show notes how people can access it. But talk a little bit about the premise of the book and what led you to writing it. And this is your second book. So if you can also right. share what the title of your first book is, too. Yeah. Well, the first one came out uh, 17 years ago. And it's called Transformation Management. And um um, th there's actually a theme that runs through both, which is transformation, and uh, which is really at the at the at the core of, of why I started writing the second one. And there's a number of of experiences working with clients that just sort of coalesced, and I thought I've got to do something with this. So just as an example, um, I, I just finished a, a pretty pretty large project with a, a very large state agency. Um, this agency uh, licensed and regulated 450,000 healthcare professionals, um, had a workforce of probably 160 people, I think. Wow. And I forget, I forget what the budget was. Um, but, uh, and they were a mess. I mean, they were a certified mess. And um, it really ha didn't have a whole lot to do with organizational design or development. It was really about um, the revenues and how do they manage the revenues and where do the revenues come from and all this kind of stuff. Money was at the core of it. And money was also at the core of their dysfunctionality. I mean, they, they didn't have the money to buy a telephone system that could actually handle the calls coming in. Um, they were dropping like 2,500 calls a day because they just didn't have the technical capacity to handle the number of people calling in. Um, but there's always, and I would emphasize always, some kind of, of, of connection back to leadership, management, how processes are managed, how, how they're designed. And the end of my last interview was with the deputy director, actually the woman who had been for all practical purposes, running the organization for several years. And um, her boss would have been the executive director, which was a politically appointed position. So, you know, they come and go. Um, but this woman, um, I, my, my, my coat was on, my hand was on the door. I was ready to walk out the door of her office. And she said, you know, and her tone was almost confessional. She said, you know, I don't even tell people where I work anymore. Mm. And I said, Why? She said, it's too embarrassing. Well, that, that really crystallized for me that there was something else going on. And there was probably, I could probably track down another six or seven um, examples that were kind of like that, where there was, it was just, there was something else going on besides the individual leader or manager. And I began to ask myself the question, is it bad management or is it a bad system? And the more I looked at it, I thought, you know, this is starting to look more and more like a systems issue than it was a person issue. And so what literally got me going was I, I began to ask myself the question, and then I got more formal about it. How do the highest performing organizations, organizations that have a consistent high impact year over year over year over year over even multiple generations of senior leadership, how do they approach leadership? And what I found out was they approach leadership very differently. Okay. okay. Oh, you're leaving me hanging. Tell me. <laughs> okay. Is that it? Okay, let's move on to the next question. No, no, no. We've got to get into that. <laughs> well, as it turns out, um, it, they actually approach it very systematically. Um, systemically would be the right word. 
but they approach leadership like it's a like it's a system of the organization. Then they design the system, uh, which is kind of the, the 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 title of the book. They they design the system because one of the attributes of a system is that it leverages the assets that are there, the resources resources that are there. In fact, one of the standard attributes of a system is that it takes one plus one and takes and creates ten. Um, and the reason um, that the word genetics is in the title is because DNA is a fabulous example of that. Your DNA and mine is made up of two basic uh, elements, phosphate and sure. That's it. But out of those elements springs the whole foundation and diversity of life. And when we think about leadership as an organizational system, what we can do is leverage the uh, the natural skills, talents, um, and resources of individual leaders, whether they're good or average, we could leverage those 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 talents and create outstanding systems of leadership. What I'm hearing you say is a, a very uh, strength based approach. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, I'm familiar with that that approach. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily call it that. Okay. Um, uh, it's it's a strength-based approach from the standpoint of of high-impact organizations have a very very real way of how they want leadership to be done. Okay. Um, the the most obvious example uh, would be the military. Um, two of the people I interviewed uh, for the book, one was a uh, full colonel in the United States Army, and the other one was was a retired four-star general. Um, who um, he's still on the, he's a NBC news analyst. Um, if, I mean, he's an incredible wow. man. Mm. Um, I don't know 10 men who have accomplished what this guy has done in one lifetime. And, uh, but the army, at least here in the States, I'm sure it is in Canada as well. The army has a very real way of how they want you to do leadership and it's systematic. And so they will take people and they train people to the requirements of their system. Mm-hmm. So the, the system sets the requirements. The system says, this is how we want you to do it. And then they train, they train, they train, and they coach, um, you know, starting from the first days of basic training uh, of how to do leadership our way. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's, they don't, what I saw, they don't, it's not a one size fits all. But it's it's a one size that's going to fit that particular organization. So the Army teaches their soldiers to do leadership their way, not the Navy way. Mm-hmm. And it's not the Navy way is bad. It's just that it, this is how we want it done in the United States Army. Yeah. I totally get it when you're saying it's not necessarily strength-based, but it's looking at the systems and leveraging those, especially the ones yes. that work, right? Right. But it's right. also not looking at it from like a standpoint of um, disease or dysfunctionality. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 And, you know, before I hit record, we were talking about one of the experiences I had in my previous uh, positions, uh, previous organizations I worked in, where I said our engagement scores were up 88%. And you asked me, well, what do you, what do you think were you know, what got you to get to that 88%? What were some of the things yeah. you were doing? And yeah. really in a nutshell is exactly what you said. We had a system. We mm-hmm. we actually articulated and wrote it out. And when mm-hmm. people joined our organization, we trained them to that system and yep. walk them through that system. And everybody right. was a part of making that system work. So everybody had a role yep. and a key function yep. to make it right. work. And right. and our system was embedded in learning and leading. We were mm-hmm. we were a learning institution. Sure. And and so leadership and and learning and embracing a growth mindset were embedded mm-hmm. in everything that we did. Right. Um, right. So I think that. That's a great way to articulate it that can make sense to everybody. And I like how you said a one size fits all because yesterday I recorded, uh, I was a guest on a podcast, no, two days ago, sorry. And the title of the podcast is Why Leadership Training Fails. And I write Mm. about that in my book. I have a chapter devoted to it. And you said- Huge, huge question. Right. And I say it's because everybody approaches managerial leadership development as a one size fits all. There's a training course that our local university is doing. Go take it. Come back, yeah. never give it a second thought, and let's just right. hope you can apply what you learn. Right. And and it's these one-offs for these different individuals that never really do apply what they learn. And and through the right. interviews that I had, you know, I said how much, in terms of your leadership abilities, how much of it came from formal training? And they said, yeah. and I, I it, it's actually I looked at different literature to see 
whether this was existed. They said 10%. They just pulled a number out of the air. You know, 10% of how I learned to be a leader came from formal training. The rest was through the system. That's probably high. I think so too. (laughs) And when I look at the other literature, this number keeps percolating, like 10% keeps popping up, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. Let's talk a little bit because you also, uh, in through the things that I've read that you've uh, written, you talk about not just the systems and the processes and understanding that and training people to that, uh, but you talk about employee engagement and the role of a leader in regards mm-hmm. to engaging their employees. Mm-hmm. And when I mm-hmm. read that, I thought of Sir Ken Robinson, who mm-hmm. really sad passed away this year. But he says something, and I actually, I actually, I quote him a lot in my in my talks and my webinars and workshops. He says, mm-hmm. and it was a it was an, a TED talk he gave, and he said the real role of a leader is climate control. Mm-hmm. It's not creating a climate of command and control, but mm-hmm. one of possibility, right? Creating that climate of possibility. And we, mm-hmm. what I read, what you wrote, that kind of you know made me think of him. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about the link between sure. employee engagement and leadership? Yeah. Okay. So the only thing that I would change about his comment there was the role of the leader. Okay. Because that, when you say the role of the leader, that automatically means that a leader is a person. Mm. And and traditionally, we think of, of leader as a person, which worked really well when the average organization had five people working for them. And it was my company. And you're all my employees, so you do what I tell you to do. Um, you know, now the, uh, uh, I was just reading something the other day that of the 2,500 largest companies in the world, the average tenure of a CEO is less than five years. So, you know, there's a, there's a turn churning going on in executive leadership ranks and hospitals. It's like three and a half years. And when the executive team leaves, at least half of the CFOs, COOs, CIOs, they all leave too. So at, at, at executive levels, there's this churning going on. And, and so um, I think we have to realize that leadership today, and I, I, I say this in my book, every organization has a system of leadership. It might be a, a one of chaos or it might be one of beauty, but but there's a system there and and your point of why uh why does leadership development not work and and one of those reasons why as you pointed out you go off you take a one-off course at the local community college you come back and if you haven't between the the parking lot of the of the community college and the parking lot of your office you by by definition of forgotten half of what you've learned and then you get inside your office and that you know, 30 feet means you've lost, you've forgotten another half. And by the time you get to your office and you're actually functioning, now you realize you can't put anything in place because this existing system prohibits you from, from implementing what you learn. So, you know, I, I really think about the system as opposed to the person. So, you know, the system can be designed to create a culture of possibilities. So um, you started your research, um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, from the standpoint of the individual leader and manager. I started from the opposite end. What is, and this is, you know, exactly what I was looking for is how do organizations of high impact, how do they approach leadership? And, you know, you've come to a conclusion and I've come to a conclusion through different lenses, but they're basically the same conclusion that if we understand leadership appropriately, that we can create organizational cultures of high impact, high employee engagement, high human centric values. One of the things that I found early on was every system has a product that's, that produces something. There's an output. Uh, systems theorists uh, tell us there's a purpose for the system. And so, um, you know, we were talking earlier, I asked you about one or two words that you might use to describe the experience or the purpose of, of the system in your last organization. What I found when I, when I would ask that question, it was always, always, a transcendent experience of the employee. Um, and that word transcendent makes me nervous. Mm. You know, it's a little too fuzzy for me. Okay. Um, it doesn't sort of fit with my 
analytical, yep. linear, data-driven brain. Um, but every time I found a high-impact organization, that's exactly what I found. Um, I get more comfortable with the word transcendent when I realize that it, it can mean something that's exceptional. So um, I found uh, uh, an organization in Anchorage, Alaska. It's a Native American healthcare organization. They start off everything with a basic value of relationship. Everything is driven off of a relationship. Hmm. Their leadership system is driven off of the, the idea of relationship. And I would actually have to add story because it's relationship and story. Both of those words fit culturally with a Native American First Nation culture, community. Absolutely. You know, yeah, and, and now, now if you took that same system out of a Native American culture and plopped it into a, um, a large urban you know, university healthcare organization, it wouldn't fit. Mm -hmm. Parts of it would. Yeah. But they would look at that thing called relationship and automatically say, that's not for us. That's not, we, yeah. do, we do science here. But in that Native American healthcare organization, you ask them how, you know, what's the impact of their or the output of their, their system of, 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 of leadership is going to be relationship and story. Mm -hmm. that, that drives everything. Right. So, um, you know, Tied to that, one of my first interviews was with a uh, young man. He was 37 at the time. He was a millennial, brilliant civil engineer. Um, hydrology was especially, um, you know, you want to design and manufacture or design and construct a large wastewater treatment plant. You know, Brian's your guy. Um, and then just like we were talking earlier, they said, oh, you're pretty good at managing these things. Let's put you in a leadership role. And, you know, like the rest of us, he didn't have a clue what he was supposed to do. And, uh, and so when I was talking to him, I said, so you mean they didn't send you off to a month of training? <laughs> he says, I mean, he's serious about everything. You know, his eyes get big. He says, no, they didn't do anything. <laughs> I say, well, don't take it personal. That's the norm. Yes. Unfortunately. Um, but he is by nature a systems thinker. I mean, mm. he, he designs systems. Right. And so what he did was design a system of leadership. Didn't know it. But he ended up designing a system of leadership. And uh, I said, so after, you know, we're having lunch and, and I said, so what's the, what's the result of all that? He said, well, and as we were talking earlier, he said, I thought I needed some way of measuring whether or not my leadership was actually working. And so he said, I worked with our HR department. And he was working for one of the world's largest engineering firms. So it's not, you know, a little, you know, neighborhood engineering company. He said, um, I, I knew I needed a way of measuring it, so I got help from an HR department. They, they helped me with a design of 360-degree evaluation for myself. And I said, uh, so how would that go over? And I, you know, he got real serious, and his voice got real quiet. He said, um, Dan, I had to close the door to my office because I was crying. I had no idea how important it was for my staff to have a relationship with me. But the system that he designed was all based on relationship because when he when he realized that he didn't know anything about leadership, we went and, like the rest of us, read a bunch of books on leadership and concluded that leadership was a relational enterprise. Exact words he used. So his idea of a relationship, though, was different than the Native American healthcare organization in Alaska. Two different ideas, but the same basic transcendent purpose relationship. Yeah. See, that's why you're my soulmate. <laughs> so the title of my book, right? It's choose. Not that I want to take the spotlight from you, but no. I mean, like it's, it's called choose to be a leader. Others would want to follow how to lead with a uh, heart and, and purpose. You know, mm -hmm. how to lead, I call it leading with the heart. Mm -hmm. I see, you know, I call it the hands and the head. The head is the strategy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We can call it the systems. Mm -hmm. We need those. Right. Uh, you know, the hands are the technical skills. Mm -hmm. We need those. Like, so looking at the, you know, engineering field, you know, the industry of engineering systems and technical skills are, are head and hands are very important. 
But when you, and you know, I, I think for the most part, organizations get that. And, and when I go into an organization, they do have these systems and they, mm. they train to the technical skills pretty, yep. pretty, pretty well. Right. But where they're always lacking is the heart, which is the relationships. Right. And, and I like what you said. If you go into some organizations starting there, mm-hmm. people will say, no, no, no. But, you know, even, even in Bernice Brown book, I, when Dare to Leach talks about, she was mm-hmm. talking to a legit rocket scientist. Mm-hmm. I actually know a rocket scientist. They're in, they're interesting people, <laughs> and I'm choosing the word interesting and very intentionally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, and and she goes, "What's the toughest part of your job? Is it making sure that you know satellites don't fall out of the air?" He goes, "Oh no, we got systems in place mm-hmm. and processes and da 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 to make sure that never happens." No. It's when Dan doesn't get along well with Sheila. Yeah. I don't know how to deal with that stuff. Right. right. And so I wanted to dig deep a little bit more into the system mm-hmm. versus the individual. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's go there a little bit. Okay. All right. So let me tell you the story about a um, elementary school principal. This woman, um, it was her first job as a principal. And it, it, she has an interesting story. She She did not want to start out being an educator. In fact, she, in college for her student teaching, she had a horrible experience student uh, as, as a student teacher. But once she got in the classroom and she had no, I mean, she needed, she got married and had needed a job. So she, she you know, she had to be a teacher for a year. <laughs> and, uh, but she did really well, found out she loved it. And so they, 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 they said, okay, it's your turn to be a principal. And um, when I, I sat down with her, I said, so, um, you know, uh, I want to talk to you about your approach to leadership. And she literally said, leadership? I don't know anything about leadership. Now, this was a elementary school. When she took it over, it was uh, massive dysfunction. It was the lowest performing school, elementary school, in a district with 18 elementary schools in a district of 25,000 students. Five years later, it's the highest performing school elementary school. And when that wasn't good enough, they decided they would take it up another notch and actually was the only school to close the achievement gap, which is a massive, massive accomplishment. And, um, and so I said, well, okay, if you don't know anything about leadership, uh, what are one or two words that you would might describe your overall philosophy of leadership? And um, she said, well, this won't be very popular, but love and grace. Mm. And in the next breath, she's talking about collaboration. And uh, that's when it began to dawn on me that it's really the experience of the workforce that's going to drive engagement. And that can start from a number of uh, a number of places might start from the idea of relationship. For her, it started with the idea of love and grace, and and she she she's a smart lady. She read my mind because, you know, it was about two days before school was uh, supposed to get out in the in the summer, so there's 450 kids, uh, elementary school kids, streaming into the school right behind me, and you could imagine the chaos just before you know school gets out in the summer. And she reads my mind. She says, "That's not the way I'm thinking about this." Because I'm thinking, okay, it's nice that these kids have a principal that loves them. I mean, that's kind of where I was at. And she said, no, it's not where I, that's not what I'm thinking, how I'm using these terms. She said, I understand what those terms mean in terms of, you know, loving kids and sort of from the sort of spiritual perspective. I understand what those words means. But she said, to me, it means I can have a difficult conversation with a, a staff member, but do it in a spirit of love and grace. Mm. And um, she said, that's my nature. I don't do that well. But I've had to learn that I could still have difficult conversations, but do it in a spirit of love and grace because she wanted her staff to have an experience of collaboration. She thought that collaboration was is what would drive um, a, a higher academic uh, achievement. And so she was uh, she was a little bit like Brian. She's a systems thinker by by just the way she thinks. And even though she said she knew nothing about leadership, she designed one of the most eloquent systems of leadership that I found outside the United States military. Wow. <laughs> In fact, when I when I walked out of her office, I said, next time you talk about this, don't be embarrassed about love and grace because I had a full colonel U.S. Army Ranger Special Forces officer 
and a, and a certified four-star four general who um, uh, holds three Purple Hearts. He's a, he's, actually, when he retired, he was one of the most highly decorated generals ever to have worn the uniform. Use almost the exact same words. Their words were um, uh, servant leadership and love. Mm-hmm. And when they started talking about servant leadership, I got. But when they started talking about love, I was like, wait a minute. The, Ar- the Army trains people to kill, right? Kill the enemy. Yet they're talking about an experience of the workforce, of, of servant leadership. And when officers are trained to serve those they lead, they ended up loving them. Mm-hmm. And uh, same thing with this principal. She started out from uh, sort of an you know, overall strategy, if you will, of love and grace to achieve a practical experience of collaboration. And um, and then she set up rules, routines, um, behaviors, put all that into a charter. They had the, the whole the whole school um, put this charter together. Um, she had uh, and, and she was going right down the list, sort of the checklist that I had in my brain. She was going right down the checklist, hitting every 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 question she got to. Um, and with this, I'll be quiet. She got to um, the, the part where she's talking about her approach to her staff and, and how she really wants to develop her staff to be just outstanding educators. And she's talking about developing the technical skills of teaching in the same breath as she's talking about making better human beings. And so finally, I said, I said, so, Aaron, it sounds to me like you're putting as much emphasis on on developing the whole person right along with the, the professional, technical, academic teaching skills. And she, <laughs> she looked at me like I was from outer space. She said, yes, why would I want half a teacher walking in my door? <laughs> and the same could be said if you're a lawyer, if it's a, edu- you know, you're in a training organization, um, if you're a software organization, manufacturing firm, why do we want half half a person walking in the door when we get the whole person for the exact same price. And the whole person is the person that has the innate human capacity. I'm getting excited at this part. (laughs) I'm hanging on every word. Okay. You know, the whole person has the, that innate ability for creativity, for innovation, for transformation, for problem solving. But in too many of our organizations, we tell our workforce Leave that at the door. We don't want it. And that is the most powerful, most beneficial part of hiring a human being. And we say, we don't want it. Leave it at the door. And that's why our organizations are receiving half the value, if that, uh, of of their workforce. And why, you know, uh, Gallup says that 66% of the workforce is either non-engaged or actively sabotaging the workplace. So with that, I'll be quiet for a minute. Hmm. I think we just need to process what you just said. <laughs> it's so powerful what you said. And it's, it's you know, you say it's revolutionary. Let's go there. Okay. Uh, I get what you're saying. Before I give my spin on why I think it's revolutionary, why, why is this revolutionary? And I'm going to say, we said this before, not evolutionary, right? right. Evolutionary, slow moving. And sometimes you right. don't evolve to a better state. Right. So I like I like the term revolutionary, but I'd like to hear from you why why that term, why is it revolutionary? Well, um, a couple of reasons. One, you know, have, talking about um, let's call them the soft skills of leadership. That's nothing new. Um, talking about caring for your employees. If you're in charge, you're supposed to care for those who you know who who you will have the charge of. And, and that's nothing new. Unfortunately, most of the time, those conversations are in the standpoint of a morality, a morality of work, a morality of caring for your people, all of which is wonderful. But, you know, people get paid to make money. You know, we're rewarded for profit, uh, profit for loss, for market share, et cetera. So, okay, all that morality stuff is, is sounds good, but I got to be responsible for a profit and loss statement. So, um, uh, you know, I, the idea of love in the workplace, having a system that creates love, again, that makes me a little uncomfortable. It's just a little too squishy for me. 
But when a U.S. Army four-star general talks about servant leadership, the next breath he's talking about love. And then he tells me a story of the first Gulf War. This guy was the commander of a a U.S. Army division of 26,000 troops, uh, 4,500 vehicles, tanks, you know, armored personnel carriers, uh, gasoline trucks, the whole thing, 100 aircraft. Um, In the first Gulf War, his division, along with a few others, executed what is was at the time considered logistically one of the most complex military maneuvers since World War II. And in 48 hours, they completely surrounded the Iraqi army and destroyed them. And, uh, and as he's telling me about this, I said, so, you know, how does the army approach leadership? He says, we practice servant leadership. And then he's talking to me about love. And he said, he's talking about uh, General Norman Storman Schwarzkopf, who was the supreme um, commander of all forces in the first Iraq war. He said um, Schwarzkopf loved soldiers. He said it wasn't just a thing. He said he loved soldiers. He said, I was one of his divisional commanders, 26,000 troops under his command. That's, uh, that's a big deal. He said he actually, quote, loved me. I, I didn't even hear it in our interview until I was reading the transcript. And I, th- I thought, he said that? And, and it was just like, I don't believe he said that. But so you have to ask your army, okay, how does the army somehow incorporate servant leadership and love? And so obviously I said, so how does the army do this? And he said, well, let me give you three ways. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you one of them. He said, by routine, that was my word, and by rule, when a unit is going out on a mission, the highest ranking officer is the last one to board the helicopter. By rule, when that helicopter lands and they're setting out their landing zone, the the highest ranking officer is the first one to get off that helicopter. And that's not just some kind of a thing. It's because the Army says if you're an officer in the Army, your number one job is to serve those you lead, which means you put yourself in harm's way first. And that's a simple way. It's not a morality thing. It's, it's no, this is how this man's Army and woman's Army is going to do it. You're the first one to get off that helicopter because you are the first one to put yourself in harm's way. Your job is to care for your subordinates. Core value of the U.S. Army. Primary uh, purpose of of an officer is, quote, you put the welfare of the nation, the Army, and the subordinates above your own. And that's one way that they institutionalize that value is by putting it into a rule and routine. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to talk about the individual versus the system and how they can go coexist. Yes, where yes. relationships, love, commitment is mm-hmm. all embedded in there as those core right. values. Right. I mean, why is it called the Purple Heart and not the Purple Head? Right. Like, it's, yeah. I don't. I don't know why it's called the Purple Heart, but I imagine it's because the heart and love is. You have to be able to possess that and demonstrate that in order to yep. get that right. That medal. Right. 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 I never thought about that question. That's a, that's a great question, though. Yeah. Yeah. If I can share a, a story that sure. from what you've just shared, you know, made me think of it. You know, like uh, next week, I'm going to be giving a webinar on on emotional intelligence. and Because one of the things I discovered through my research, and I wasn't, lo- it wasn't a thesis on leadership, mm-hmm. right? It was, I did start with the individual in mind, the manager, but I wanted to focus on how they learned through everyday work, through the system. Because I, I, we would train people, and this happens. You train uh, law and frontline officers to a new, like they come through training. They get the latest training, right? They get the access to the latest um, equipment, um, systems. We're, we're teaching them up-to-date stuff. But then there's sergeants and staff sergeants and inspectors who've been in the field 10, 20 plus years, who sometimes are not always up to date with what's going on. You Or even the field training officers that then are supposed to mentor the new recruits, right? Sometimes they're not even up to date. You get the recruit go into the field and then the, the mentor didn't even, or the field training officer didn't even have the skills that they had. And so you would see that fail. Like when we talked about that, when the system isn't set up 
to help the individual transfer what they've learned, it fails, right? That's why I wanted to start there. Um, but one of the things that kept coming out of my research was leadership versus management. And what was really ingrained in the leadership when I actually I came up with four categories based on all, I'm a qualitative researcher, so I collect people's okay. stories. Sure. And um, I came up with four categories. And, and I talk about this often, like, and if anybody's listened to me before, you know, hopefully they don't roll their eyes. They've heard me say this, but mm -hmm. it's like a hand reached out of the data and slapped me across the face because I was staring at the four mm -hmm. domains of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. Maybe they sound a little bit different, but that's what they were. Mm -hmm. And to me, the emotional intelligence is leading with the heart, the love is integrated there, the collaboration, the compassion. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, like in this webinar that I'm going to give next week, one of the first places I'm going to talk about, where the first, the first place we're going to start off with is assess your readiness to be a leader. Mm -hmm. uh, have you ever even thought about why you want to go to that stage? Mm -hmm. You know, have you thought about the commitment, the devotion, everything that you said mm -hmm. this four-star general talked about? Have yeah. you do you have the capacity to even think about how your life will change mm -hmm. and really what your purpose is before mm -hmm. you take that position? Is it yeah. for a, the elite status? Is it for the right. salary? Right. Because you're going to be really uh, disappointed when you realize mm -hmm. you're going to be working a lot more hours than you're probably mm -hmm. getting paid for. Mm -hmm. And and I remember I took over, I started to become known as the, the, the manager that could come in and help and support teams that were really struggling. Mm -hmm. And I remember I took over this one team. And so here's my story. Mm -hmm. I took over this one team and, oh, God, they would, they would limp into work every day. Mm -hmm. They were high performers that all of a sudden got labeled as problematic. Sure. And there's this one guy on the team. I had my, my, my system was you have one-on-ones with everybody. You get to know mm -hmm. who they are. Mm -hmm. And then you institute these systems and processes where you're continually communicating. You're getting to know people. Right. It's hard to show love to somebody who you don't know and they don't know you, right? Mm -hmm. right. So we had our first one-on-one. -on -one. It was an hour long. It went an hour and a half, actually. I think it was way beyond the time that we were supposed to have together. And it was brutal. I felt like I was getting kicked in the gut over and over again. It was mm -hmm. a release of frustration, mm -hmm. anger, rage, sadness, disappointment, disillusionment, just pouring out of this poor, poor individual. It was very hard to listen to mm -hmm. and not to take personally. Went sure. home, opened a bottle of scotch. <laughs> <laughs> What a way to cope, eh? <laughs> Drink your problems away. No, no. Just a little nip. And I sat down with my husband and he said, and I was like, oh, that was tough. That was brutal. And, and I'm processing through my feelings of anger. And, you know, and, and he said to me, he said all that to you? I said, yeah. I goes, he must trust you. Hmm. To be able to say all of that to you without yeah. fear that he may get reprimanded. Like that right. was a risk on his yeah. part. Yeah. So the next, that, that hit hard and that mm -hmm. meant a lot to hear that. My sure. husband's a very wise man. <laughs> <laughs> As we all are. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, little shout out to him. Uh, yeah. So I went to work the next day and I literally wanted to hide in my office. I didn't want to see this guy. I didn't want to yeah. see him. But I sat down. First thing in the morning, I sent him an email message. I said, I understand how hard that must have been for you. And I, I'm thinking about you, wondering how you're doing. You want to meet me in the cafeteria and we can have share a tea or have a tea or a coffee. Mm -hmm. And like seconds, yes, I'll meet you there. Okay. Went down, got our tea, coffee. We sat down mm -hmm. and he said, before I even started to talk, he said, so I wanted to hide in my office today to avoid you. <laughs> <laughs> but when I got the message, I just felt this, all this tension and fear because then he was like, oh, oh, I shouldn't have yeah. done that. Right. Right. Because right. this fear and tension release still a little bit apprehensive, but really release. So by sending him that message, I created a, a brave space for him where he could explore and start to develop trust with me. Mm -hmm. And then I said, listen, I'm going to share a little story with you as to why I became a leader. And I shared a story, and I'll make this part short, but my story was about how I worked in, as an individual contributor. I was like an instructional designer, and I worked in an organization where the management team was the most toxic, dysfunctional group of human beings mm -hmm. I, I knew. And, and, and they were role, role modeling horrible behaviors. And I'm like, this is wrong. I'm going to do what I can as an individual contributor to hold people accountable. If I want to be a leader, because that's when I realized I want to be a manager mm -hmm. because I, I need to change the culture when I see stuff like that. As an individual contributor, I can do things on my own. And so I, I thought, well, this is an opportunity for me to practice these leadership skills and start holding people accountable and, and not listening to the rumors and the gossip, but 
push people out of my office to go and deal with their, their demons, you know, and, and whatever, like, you know, don't come to me and drop your grenades and things like that. And so I said to him, I wanted to help people. I wanted to be there for others. My role as a manager is to give you what you need to succeed, the tools, the systems, but to be that develop a relationship with you and get to know you and, and, and help you. The, so like talking about why this is revolutionary and why people, and we're going to go into that. What's the return on investment. So I'll start that part of the, the conversation off, but this was the ROI that I saw their productivity shot up, like went up to like, and I said, I remember I was sitting with my manager. I said, my goal for this team is to see their productivity increase by 30%. I would say it went up by 40, maybe even 50. So this one individual was seen as the most problematic member of the team. He was the most exceptional person on the team, but he had started to lose hope and confidence in himself. He was the best person. He was the best person I had on my team. And the things that this man could do was fun, like the amount of work he could produce in a short period of time. And the work was exceptional. It was, it was like gold star. And I left the organization and guess what? He left too eventually because he's like, he didn't feel like he had somebody to support him in, in some of the ways that I was. And they lost because they didn't know how to recreate that system. Yeah. They yeah. lost him. So that was the ROI that I saw. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about that from your perspective. And thank you for, that was a long ramble. but <laughs> Well, that, that's fine. And actually your story reminds me a lot of my friend, Brian, the civil engineer. Um, and, you know, we talk about, you know, relationship and love and grace. You know, the, the engineers of the world, those kind, that kind of language just sort of makes them a little, go a little crazy. Yeah. Um, and Brian, um, I mean, he's an, he's, a, he's an engineer. I mean, you know, he has that mindset. He's analytical and he's, he's linear and he's, you know, data driven. But he did pretty much um, kind of what you just did, what you just said. So he, he, you know, as an engineer, he started from the standpoint, of, okay, relationship. Well, what does that mean for me? So simplistically, he just took the next step, which was when people come into my office, I need to spend a few minutes talking to them about who they are and getting to know them as people as opposed to engineers. And then he just then he then he just rashly took it to the next step, which is, well, when I go out and I'm meeting with somebody in their workstation, well, I need to do it again. I need to just spend a few minutes about who they are. And then he took the next rational step, which was, well, maybe the team needs that idea of relationship so he stripped out all of the all of the cubicles in the in the office set up an open office concept and um, he competes with you know engineering other engineering firms and and in this part of the country companies like Google and Apple or Apple and Microsoft so he said I needed to have I needed to set up some kind of a fun factor so he bought a ping pong table, stuck it in the middle of the office. <laughs> I, I said, how'd that go? He said, well, he looked at me. He said, well, people about your age, he said, they didn't like it too well. <laughs> <laughs> I said, thank you very much. Um, but he said, it took about three weeks. And in three weeks, everybody's playing ping pong during breaks. And we've got open competition with you know ping pong. So here's an here's a, a engineer, highly analytical, says, oh, my relationship has to produce, my, my leadership has to produce relationship. Oh, how do I do that? And so he just started in, a, started in a very engineering linear mindset. Oh, well, I start here and then I took take the next step because it's a rational next step. And he designed a system of leadership. So um, I think your question, though, was about ROI. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So what, what was – but no, you know, we have to keep repeating the system of leadership because it is revolutionary. People don't understand yeah. it. So the more they right. hear it, maybe something will click for them and they yeah. can start to explore what their system is and yep. get some inspiration from the things you said. But the next thing is what was his ROI in doing it? What was that return that he saw? Well, so um, a few years later, um, his company merged with another one, and, and 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 they were already one of the world's world's largest engineering firms. So now they're a mega engineering firm, and you know, firms like that they they merge. It's always like an, an excuse to get out of town, and so there's lots of people jettisoning, going to other places. They don't want to. They're already tired of working for a big firm. They they don't want to work for a bigger firm. Turned out um, two things. Uh, one, his work teams had the lowest turnover of all of the teams in the in the company. 
And the other one is value. Um, one of the things that I saw in, in high impact organizations is they focus on value even more than they focus on uh, um, profitability, market share, all that stuff. So uh, when Brian um, started looking at value, one of the things he decided to do, he actually, right now he's the, the, his company's leader in applying um, virtual reality in the design of large, large um, hydrology projects, public works projects. And, and there, you know, take that technology combined with a very high performing, high impact work team. They are delivering so much value. He told me not too long ago, he said, um, we are winning 14 out of 15 proposals. He said, I can't hire people fast enough. He said, in fact, it's a huge problem because we got way more work coming in than we have people to, to do the work. So uh, transition to a different organization, a manufacturing company. They design and manufacture um, really high-end custom commercial furniture. You've never heard of them, but if I rattled off their customers, you would have heard probably of all of them. Major, major aerospace, fashion, retail, you know, very, very large, very well-prestigious customers. And um, I took a tour of their plant, um, sat down with um, uh, one of their senior executives and had an interview with the president. And all, all three places, they said, we do servant leadership. And uh, I was like, well, that's what I saw. Um, but then in the next breath, they would be talking about waste and eliminating waste in the manufacturing and design pro process. And they are huge implementers of the Toyota production system. In fact, if you walked into their plants and you talked to them, that's what you're going to hear. That's what you're going to see is the mm -hmm. Toyota production system. Yeah. But in my judgment, what they don't talk about enough is the management system or the system of leadership that goes along with the Toyota production system that actually makes it work. Yeah. And, um, and so they have every one of their staff members and every one of their production leads um, coordinators, uh, leaders, managers, whatever word you want to use for them, they are they are all trained to be mentors of the frontline staff in the battle to find and eliminate waste. And uh, it really starts from their approach to leadership, which is servant leadership. You go to work for that organization, you will be a servant leader. If you don't want to be that, then you're not going to get a job there or go someplace else. You will be a servant to those that you lead, and they, they're not even going to call you leader or manager or production lead. Your name, your title is mentor. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, when I was taking a tour, there was a woman who was, who was explaining how she had seen – she was cutting big pieces of foam core material into parts for furniture. She, had, she, had, she saw this opportunity where she thought she can get five parts – out of the same amount of material where they were getting four parts, if the raw material was just reconfigured to a slightly different size dimension. And so she's telling this story and she says, I went to my mentor and um, asked her, my mentor, if this was a good idea and what do I do? And so she mentored me through the process. And every time she used the word mentor, she turns to this short little lady standing next to her. So finally I said, okay, who is this lady? Is this lady your supervisor? And she looked at me like I was from a different planet. She said, yeah, but we just call them mentors. But it's a perfect term title to describe the relationship. Right. So um, they have 200 employees and they don't all do this by their own admission. But I bet if you looked at engagement levels, they'd be up 75, 80%. Oh, easy. yeah. And um, so 200 employees, including leadership management ranks, 200 employees, they will initiate 1,000 to 1,250 Kaizans, which is a formal process improvement process. They will, they will initiate 1,000 to 1,250 Kaizans every year. Each one saves the company about $1,000. You put all of it together and every year they are extracting four to five percent of gross sales out of their cost structure every year, mm. every year. Now you think about that and 
you know, if, if they're pulling 5% of their cost structure, 5% of gross sales out of their cost structure every year, that means that they can, they have a, a lot of flexibility in what to do with that money. Maybe they want to give that, some of that back to their customers. They don't, they don't raise their prices in a year if they don't want to. Maybe they give that, that extra money or that extra value to their employees as bonuses or a greater contribution to their 401k plan. It's one thing to talk about servant leadership as a moral idea, but when you put it, operationalize it, create an entire leadership system around it, it creates enormous economic value. And uh, in April, I think it was maybe late March, um, they started to partner with uh, one of the largest healthcare organizations down here in the States in 24 hours, they flipped their production from, from producing furniture to producing face masks for the healthcare industry. A mm-hmm. hundred million face masks. And it wasn't all from them. They, they partnered with some of, some of their clients, actually. Okay. Um, but they flipped, they flipped production in 24 hours to do wow. that. You don't do that. If you without, don't have a system. Without, if you don't have a system and, and everybody is on board. Right. And so not only are they creating fabulous value for their customers. If you want to do business with them, you have to get in line. They have a waiting list of people that want to do business with them. And your question about ROI, I think is spot on because when, when uh, what I found these high impact organizations, they design these systems of leadership that engage intentionally engages employees. Not only does engagement levels go up, but it's exactly what Gallup says will go up, which is profitability, growth, better value for customers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. There you go. There you go. And, and, and that is a good example of that, the, the financial ROI. And earlier mm-hmm. you gave a good example of a social ROI when you talked about yep. the principle and closing the only yes. school to, to, to close the uh, achievement right. gap. Yeah. So because I, after I left uh, law enforcement, I went over to work for the Ministry of Education. Mm. And so uh, – I, I definitely have a lot of people from the Ministry of Education listening, so yeah. th- they can see the ROI for them as well. Well, you know, so th- that's a that's a great example. So that teacher, that that principal, the value that that she brought with the, her her approach to leadership wasn't just inside the school. Uh, you know, you, you talk about money, and, and you know, in education and government, money is always a budget, and the thing I the thing that'll get you fired faster is to overspend your budget. Yeah, you, you just don't do that. Right. So she got done with her first year of being a principal, and, and she was quite pleased. She had a $14,000 budget surplus. Mm. So she was pretty proud of herself. Mm. So she got really looking at the numbers and realized that there was a church that, that, that rented the, her building, the building, on Sunday mornings for its services. They had, they had, they had given the school a $15,000 donation, just as a thank you which meant she had actually had overspent her budget by $1,000. Oh, no. <laughs> I hope she didn't but, get fired. <laughs> no, but, but, but as she was explaining to me, she said, the lights went on for me when I realized that that, that church represented a resource that I could tap into for the benefit of my customers. Mm-hmm. That was my word, her students. And, and she, and then she realized, well, wait, well, wait a minute, there's other community groups that actually, actually had been knocking on the door of the school for years saying, we're here, we want to help, but they had been pushed away. Mm-hmm. And so she brought those other community groups into the school. And so if you're a teacher in that school and you're having an in-service and you needed lunch, they put the word out to that church. It was a multi-ethnic church, so you had food from all over the world coming in and landing on your doorstep free of charge. If uh, if you went to that school on a Saturday morning a week before school started in the fall, you'd find 75 to 100 volunteer, neighborhood volunteers coming in, pressure washing the school, cleaning the school, getting classrooms prepared. They They would do as much in one day as it would take, take a teacher an entire week to get their, their classrooms ready. Wow. So it, was, it wasn't just financial ROI, but it was that social ROI where she found all of these resources 
brought them into the school free of charge. But it started from that whole idea of collaboration and, and, and having a system that produced an experience of collaboration. And it was just a natural extension. Collaboration was just a natural extension to take it from her teachers and her faculty and her staff to the neighborhood. Mm. It was just a natural extension. Wow. So, okay, we're going to slowly start to wrap up. And I think this leads us really nicely to the, our second to last question. Okay. Keep it, start it, drop it. Okay. So, yeah, what should organizations keep, start, and drop? Okay. So, keep core values. Um, my one advice would be to shrink the number and simplify them because most organizations have 8, 10, 12 core values and they're too many. Yeah. What I found are these, these really high impact organizations, they would have one or two. Mm-hmm. And this, that's the part that I would keep. The part that I would start was um, aligning behaviors with those values and keeping leaders and managers, managers accountable to those behaviors that are aligned with core values. Um, and and you, you sort of touched on, on your own approach to this. Um, I found organizations that, um, and I'm thinking of a couple of healthcare organizations, that basically said, here's our core behaviors of our leader. If you're a leader in this organization, you are expected to model these behaviors which are tied to our core values. And by the way, you are going to be evaluated by your subordinates, by your peers and your own supervisors in part against your ability to model those behaviors. So they took core values, designed behaviors that supported those values, institutionalized them. They weren't just ideas sitting on a wall someplace. They institutionalized them into how leaders are actually supposed to behave and model. So that's where I would start. Okay. The thing that I would drop, I would, and actually Erin, this principal did this, uh, which I thought was brilliant. She said to her staff, when she first came on board, let's talk about rules. What are the rules? And she said, we, we got up on a wall, every rule that we had, Every rule that should have been a rule, every place that we had rules that were nonsense. And then she, she said, we got every, every rule up on a wall, written and unwritten. And then she said, I said, okay, now let's redesign our own rules. So I would drop rules that don't matter. First, you have to identify them. And then I would just actually intentionally design rules that do matter, that support the intent and the purpose of your leadership system. So drop ineffective, useless yep. rules. Yeah, yeah. But identify them. Yeah, you got to identify them. So my my last consulting company I worked for uh, is a smaller uh, regional uh, organization. You know, it's a great example of a, of a unwritten but nonsensical rule. The president of the company uh, every morning would walk in the, in the door, go into his office, lock the door, pull the interior shades of his office down and do his own work. It was, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it was the morning was his time to do his work and he didn't want to be interrupted. But the, the rule was don't bother David in the morning. One of the consequences, in my opinion, of that was that collaboration between the other consultants in the company was extremely low. We had more mental intellectual horsepower in that, in that office than I can even imagine. Zero collaboration. And if I was to talk to them, I'd say, David, that is a rule that you've established and you've got to get rid of it because it's it has because you're the president of the company. It has massive impact on the culture of the organization. Mm-hmm. Oh, any last words? You know, we, we talk about uh, a revolution and I, 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 I don't use that word lightly. And I, act, I absolutely do believe that we need to revolutionize the way we think about leadership because we are leaving enormous, let's call it money on the table. Um, I, I strongly believe that if we created systems of leadership that engage the workforce, 
unleashed the basic human capacity of, of the workforce to create, to innovate, to um, transform, we would unleash a tidal wave of new manufacturing jobs, a tidal wave of new ideas, innovative con- innovative technology, and we'd all have fun doing it. And think about what the world would look like if everybody actually enjoyed going to work. It wasn't a chore, but they got value. They, they, felt, they felt personal significance going to work and and like you you did with with this this one uh, gentleman who kind of ripped you to shreds when you first walked in the door, you know, you know if if everybody could have that kind of an experience in their workplace where we spend eight, ten, twelve hours a day, what would the world world look like? It would be a radically different place. Yeah. Yeah, I would say you know my my job is to improve people's lives by transforming one workplace at a time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I got, what I'm taking away from this, well, it's a validation of my philosophies and beliefs, uh, mm-hmm. which are grounded in science experience and, mm-hmm. you know, um, I guess my compassion. But it's okay to infuse love into the workplace, mm-hmm. you know, ground your approach in relationships mm-hmm. and don't ignore the system that you're in. And there's a, they're not mutually exclusive. Relationships, love, and systems are not mutually exclusive right. concepts. They're not at odds with one yeah. another. They can be they married. They yep. complement. They yep. complement. And if you can figure out how to do that, then you have, like you said, the potential for your company and the people within it is enormous. Yep. And, I mean, we just scratched the tip of the iceberg with our conversation. So mm-hmm. I do encourage people, you know, if they're listening to this and they're like, I want more, <laughs> they're hungry and they need more. And yeah. they want to start exploring what this may look like for their workplace mm-hmm. Buy his book, leveraging the genetics of leadership, cracking the code of sustainable team performance. I'm going to put his website in the show notes. You can access it through there. It's also available on Amazon. Go there, please write. If you buy it and you love it, which I have no doubt you will leave a review to encourage others because like Dan, like you said, um, there is so much potential. There's so much work ahead of us. Uh, it won't. It, it can't just be one person, and it yeah. can't just be a handful of consultants. Yeah. Uh, people within organizations need to see that it's their responsibility to, to start doing something. And so, this getting that book could be a good, a good playbook for them to ha- help them figure out what's the next step. So, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank um, you. This was a wonderful conversation for me and really inspiring to me. And and I really do, you know, thank you from the bottom of my heart. That, making, taking all of this time to talk to me today. And and I have no doubt we will continue to chat in the future and work together. So thank you so much. Thank you everyone for listening. That is our show for today. I am Dr. Joanna Fogonis, and I look forward to tackling the next issue with you.